Hi guys and welcome to the GMBN podcast. This one is a festive feeling as we sat down with our Christmas jumpers and a nice cold beer to discuss the past decade of tech. Now joining me we had our very own Steve Jones and Andrew Dodd. Now for those of you that don't know, these two have both got encyclopedic knowledge of the mountain bikes that we ride and the mountain bike industry and they were absolute fantastic candidates to be pitching about the tech that shaped our decade of mountain biking. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, you can, of course, enjoy it in all its visual glory of woolly jumper fiasco, or you can listen to it on your podcast streaming service of choice, be it Spotify, Deezer, Apple, whatever. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy. It was a really fun conversation. So looking at this past decade, who is the most forward-thinking or progressive brand? Not necessarily a brand that got it right every time, a brand that certainly wasn't afraid to try new things. If we start with you, Doddy. Um, it's pretty easy for me to talk about them quite a lot. It's Mondraker. Um, yeah, by no accounts did they get it completely right, but when they launched forward geometry in like 2012, bearing in mind that the average stem length on mountain bikes was around 70 mil back then, you might get a 50 for the adventurous riders. They went straight in with a 10 mil and chucked 60 mil on the front centre of the bikes, um, in combination with some other stuff, of course. And that was largely down to Cesar Rojo, who helped sort of pioneer that, and Fabian Burrell working with them. And it was really ballsy to do it. And if you rode one of those bikes in the early days, like the angles, it had quite a steep head angle, it was about 67, so it wasn't that sort of slack, really, by all accounts. But it was insane. And the fact that they went straight in whole hog, all in, no kissing. Um, other manufacturers started jumping in 10 mil at a time. Yeah. They went as far as they dared go. And they've actually come back since to about 30. And really, I can only put that down to the fact that it's really hard to get your bar position and other things right with a 10 mil stem yep. and it's and it's too different to jump between that and other bikes but I think taking a gamble and doing that I think it's amazing I mean Mondraker they definitely well they were like as we're saying very forward thinking and yeah. I think as a mass producer of bikes they're yeah, there was I mean, a big case. If you look at it, I mean, you know, you're 10 years later mm. and, and people are still catching up with Mondraker. Yes. Yeah. You know, and and, and you know, what, what Cesar and Fabian have done is, is yeah, I agree with you, uh, Dolly, yeah. pretty massive. I mean, of course, the, bike, the bikes aren't pretty <clears> either. Um, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this. Those, Not pretty. Those early ones <laughs> were pretty pretty hounding. And yeah. I, I've still got one and I'll bring it in at some point. Yeah. To, I mean, on it's, the, it's a large and yeah. it's still bigger than most XLs. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I'll, add to, I'll add another brand to the mix, but to continue on the Mondraker, I mean, their first summon was the aluminium bike was £32 yeah. for the downhill bike. Yes. You know, yeah. everybody, everybody was trying to make these lightweight carbon bikes, but £32. Isn't that where we are now? I, and when I rode it, when I rode it, I was like, oh my God, this, this thing is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to bring into the mix, Doddy. I think, I think YT. I yeah. mean, oh, yes. I rode... I rode their um, their downhill bikes back, you know, 2009, 2010. Mm. I thought, wow, this, these bikes are like seriously good, and they're like 2,000 euros for the bike. And they they brought a you know a different business model to the market. They they got people to buy bikes differently. Remember the adverts so, when it first came uh, yeah, out? They, yeah, they were, they were very different adverts, and and the bikes were quality. And I I said, you know, continually when I worked for the magazine, it was like. It was bike of the year, one hundred percent, because the performance on it, the value of it, you know, the geometry, everything was amazing. And I said, I said to Marcus and Stefan and YT, I said, guys, it's it's okay, you know, me saying the bike of the year, blah blah blah. But what you need is a guy to go and win the World Cup series on that bike. Yeah. And I had the conversation in a, in a in a cellar in Spain. I said, well, there's only one guy to get, Aaron Gwynn. They went and got Aaron Gwynn, and they won the World Cup series yeah. twice. I think, right? So I think in terms That's of proving a bike straight out, it? exactly, yeah. it needed proving. They, you know, they they came from nowhere, and in ten, you know, ten years later, they're they're a hell of a brand. But also, I think in the years that Aaron Gwynn did, you know, really champion the overall, mm -hmm. 
he had some amazing, I'm thinking of the year he beat Danny Hart, even though Danny won the last three rounds, the year that it was going toe-to-toe with Greg Minar, and it was real vintage, real vintage racing, mm. and I think that kind of really yeah. strengthened the course. Uh, one, but I think when it came, I think one of the most impressive pieces of tech for me of the decade is is a brand's ability or, or a person's ability to work out the correct step, stiffness and flex balance of a bike. Mm. It's it's incredibly difficult to to, to get that feeling. A lot, we'll, lot, we'll, we're going to get onto that. Don't you worry. Uh, no, but yeah. and it'll bring it on to a brand, a brand that is progressive. Okay. Go on. And, a brand, and I will talk about it in depth later, is Antidote from Southern Poland. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. A, bl- a brand by yeah. You know, a guy, George Dabrowski. So I think in terms of brands, for me, in terms of progressivity of, of a bikes, that, that's for me the one. Yeah, I think... I think you both, the first two nominations, are very, very, very strong. And I think Antidote of a bike that I would, I would, you know, love, love, love to ride. But I think that those Antidotes seem to be an incredible refinement, you know? Well, the thing is, right? Maybe not something that is smashed boundaries in the same way that... Well, it has. I, I, I disagree with you. Totally okay. disagree with you. Because a lot of the time we think that, that the best bikes in the world are the bikes ridden by the world champions, the World Cup winners. And that is obviously true to a certain degree, mm. but there are brands out there doing some super cool stuff. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the Antidote is probably the best, one of the best mountain bikes, bikes I've ever, ever ridden. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm getting away from. No, that. I mean, I'm going to arbitrarily decide after each one of these. Okay. Each one of these sections. Yeah. Who the winner is, and I think the, in terms of geometry, Mondraker have you know changed things. I They've think changed they opened the everyone's eyes. I think to what what the future is going to hold. What, what, I you think, have to, what you have to bear in mind there, though, with Mondraker, a lot of that process was began with Fabian. We needed we did the Kona yeah, bikes yeah, in yeah. 2004, yeah. 2005. But ultimately, and it, was, it was still them as a brand. That yeah, it was a couple. Sorry. It was a combination of Paul Walton and Fabian who, yeah. who made those changes. They were mm. very radical changes. So yeah, they're famous for that. Yeah. I but, think but, but, but in my decision, right. the way that it's affected the consumer's experience of mountain biking, and you look at big brands now like Common Soul, you know, so many brands are going direct. I think YT, I think they really, really were, and they, so I'm going to say the most progressive mm. brand. In my well, opinion, they changed the whole business model of how we, yeah. how we buy bikes. They ripped it, it to was, shreds. It was great news for everybody. They made mountain bikes affordable to so many people, right? So there we have it, our first category of the most kind of forward-thinking brands. Often when we think of that, it's interestingly enough, YT perhaps have done it for their disregard of the model of what a mountain bike brand should be as much as their bikes themselves. But let's talk about the bikes themselves. The trail slash enduro bike of the decade, the most important one, not necessarily the all and out best, but the most important one. I'll start with you, Steve. Do you know what? I don't really think much has changed in the last decade. Um, I feel Dolly will disagree with that. Um, I think, I think overall, when you look at, I, I, I'll judge it all. I'll judge everything on performance, which is contrary to what you say. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be performance. If, you, if you're charging big prices, there has to be a performance advantage of that bike. And I think a lot of the time we look at, we associate stiffness with speed. I think that is actually far from the truth. So we've been, we've been wrapped up in these kind of super stiff carbon bikes and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, I think the Specialized Enduro was, was a benchmark, benchmark bike of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I think the Enduro, the 29-inch Enduro with 160-mil travel, I think it is a very important bike of this decade as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, just to talk about some of those points you raised, I remember, I believe, 
seeing some of your work in the past talking about stiffness of wheels, mm-hmm. you know, snaking through things. Yeah, we've gone to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I'm sure. I'm sure that all in good time. I'll come into that a minute later. But, yeah, and, and I think you're totally right. I think you know the bike industry. We arbitrarily say things are 15 percent stiffer than what and in which direction. Mm. Yeah. And there's no actual so, standardisation of that. Can I actually tell you guys a true story that, act, that actually happened, right? Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was invited to a press conference in, uh, uh, it was in France, maybe not that long ago, actually. And I'd spoken to, the, to the, the designers of this particular bike before the press conference and blah, blah, blah. And um, they, they said, yes, okay, well, this bike is now X amount stiffer and stronger than the previous model. And I was like... After I didn't say anything in front of everybody else, and I went back later and I said, "Guys, you just said the opposite to what you told me before before the before the meeting." And they said, "This is true." They said, "Well, the journalists want to hear that that it's yeah. different, stronger." I was absolutely Water gobsmacked. <laughs> I was like, "You just lied to the world's press." Yeah, it's like, but there's wow. no way that people can. And, really... and it's a seriously, seriously big brand. Yeah, but there's no way that as you can really test that. Do you know what I mean? Because because they said you that it's fifteen percent stiffer. But where? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, unless yeah. you have a jig that can test, because they would always, they could always hide and say, "Well, actually, it was in that one yeah. year you didn't try," yeah. and it's, it's yeah. so hard. But Dolly, what's your? What's, yeah, I've got a couple of options here, yeah. and the first one going a completely different tangent to yours. Mm. I want to say the Santa Cruz Bronson. Mm-hmm. Right, hear me out here, because the early ones, the geometry by today's standards, is almost laughable. You know, they've even progressed massively, but the Bronson changed what we think an enduro or a trail bike actually is. When those first Bronsons came out, the carbon Bronson with the, the NV wheels with the matching decals and the XTR, suddenly a five grand bike became almost socially acceptable. And before then it wasn't. That was road bike territory only. And for the first time it came into mountain biking and it changed the entire market, I think. Can I, can yeah. I ask you what it changed, Doddy? It made people think differently about bike branding, about how you That's perceive what is acceptable in terms of pricing. Or, or at least they and made also, you think that. Well, no, it opened the doors for many other brands to make cheap versions. Well, I think I would like cheap to... Cheap carbon rims, I cheap alloy rims. I'd like to just interject, and I think that when we talk about people maybe listening, talk about Santa Cruz. Yeah. And I think Santa Cruz has done something very interesting in the past 10 years, is they managed to keep their prestigious status as a brand, but also they're far more common. And I, I do see what you're talking about. Mm. I think the Bronson in itself, I think let's not get da- get bogged down in the bike itself because it did have its very but, kind of... Well, you're talking, you talking about an important bike. You have not to. You, about there, the there has thing. got to be a performance advantage to charge that money. Yeah, well... That's not, what, that's not the, what my point was. So you're, talking, bra- so you're talking about branding then? I'm talking, yeah. absolutely, it's right. about what's perceptible yeah. okay. as acceptable in mountain biking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very different. But well, the opposite yes, end, doing that as well. Hold on, hear me out, I haven't finished. The opposite end of that, I was going to say the YT Capra. 100%, yeah. Well, there you go. For completely different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And that was almost spawned off the back of what mm-hmm. Santa Cruz opened up. Yeah. You had to have that for someone else to realise, hold on a second, mm. what does it cost this much? Yeah. Why can't we sell direct? Yeah, 100%. you know, you have to have these things happen. Yeah, and, and that's that's why both of them, I think, are really important yeah, bikes. I I, I I totally agree with you. I mean, people buy bikes on what they look like, right? They, yeah. A lot of yeah. people don't buy bikes in performance. I mean, you could talk about suspension between a Lyric and a Fox Thirty Six. How many people yeah. know the difference between the two? Maybe two percent of people. Uh, but I'm going to bring in a performance thing to this conversation as well. And I think Starling, which is a British brand from Bristol, mm-hmm. make a steel bike, 150 mil travel. And I, I put, you know, when I was doing testing, I put things against the clock just to, yeah. you know, and, and I think when you're buying a bike, I think 
fatigue is a really important thing, and, I, and I, it's easy to measure actually. Like I went, to, I did a test in in. Uh, That's in rider fatigue. Yeah, so rider fatigue. I was, I was in in uh, northern Italy once, and I had a bike from a brand which was built in carbon, and a bike, the same brand, exactly the same bike, same components in um, in aluminium, and the aluminium bike was so much more comfortable when you're riding it. So. Yeah, I think the comfort is important. I think when I rode the Starling bike, it was so comfortable, and I was I was doing like big, long, ten-minute downhill runs. And I was like against some of the carbon bikes. I was like, wow, this feels really comfortable. Mm. So Starling for me on on the list. Now I want to bring maybe maybe a few bikes that we haven't spoken about, but I think were quite important in the trail bike enduro category. I want to think about some of those bikes, such as. I'm in that kind of first wave, maybe second wave of 29ers that were actually very, very kind of, they kind of were the first bikes to properly dial it in. Like, you know, obviously there was Enduro, but then the next kind of thing, we talk about the Trek Slash. Beautiful bike, on it? Yeah, and bikes mm-hmm. actually quite people like, it's suddenly you saw a bike and 29 wheels didn't look stupid anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that was actually quite an important part. Aesthetically, it does matter to people. But but the but the specialised came before that. That's quite what, yeah, quite, totally. quite quite some time before that. And you know, I, I don't actually subscribe to the whole chainstay thing with with twenty nine inch wheels. I think I think people say yeah, ch- short chainstays are better. They're not better. They're just different. It just gives you a different feel. That's yeah. all it is really. But I think you know they made a, a, a twenty nine inch bike that was really cool and it was really fun to ride and I th- great. I bike. think for what that bike did. It, it it gave legs to the 29er movement. And yeah, I think... It, it kind of happened earlier as well. I mean, it, it became more acceptable because Trek did it. Yeah, Norco yeah. did it in 2012. They had a the great Shinobi. bike. They had a great bike. But but actually, it, was, it was actually the Shinobi. That I'm, I'm sure you, we rode at the same time, didn't we? And yeah. it was like, oh my God, this bike feels amazing. So that, that bike in 2012, when people were still struggling with 29s and people were still on 135, on the back end, I had one four two. Yeah, it had one twenty out back, one forty up front. We're talking Shinobi now. Yeah, yeah, I agree and with Dolly. Phenomenal it was a great bike. It was and, a good, yeah, and that bike was so good it went under everyone's radar, and even Norco didn't really know what to do with it. They just mm. kind of kept it there. Yeah, and then suddenly everyone's like, oh, actually, you can have a twenty nine with more travel. <laughs> yeah, because track track <laughs> had the rumblefish. Yeah, they were right? Was it rumblefish? Uh, it was the Rumblefish, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's a track of the Rumblefish. Well, it was like, fishy, it, really, wasn't it? And it was, it was yeah. fast, but yeah. like it wasn't fun, and that's yeah. the whole point, really. Yeah, yeah. but I think yeah. that, that 29er but, brought yeah, the slash long, amazing bike. long or the, the Enduro predated it, but that, that I think, it went on to decide, I think, the thing, probably is... The thing is, right, think about it, the, the Slash probably did what the Bronson did. It was visually amazing. 100%, yeah. And it brought the 29-inch wheels, which was great, and it was fast. It was like, I mean, it was a phenomenally great-looking bike. When Dare I, I say... They put Trek back in the cool camp as I well. Think so so I over think the years, so, Trek yeah. and Specialized kind of gone up and down a bit. You know, the PC Mac thing, uh, yeah. and the Slash was one of the coolest bikes that but they launched. When, when talking about when I'm, like I said, choosing between your suggestions, yeah. I honestly, for some reason, I was averse to those first generation Bonsons. I really just was not. I didn't I, like the VPP. I didn't like I the didn't, road. It was too. It was. We talk about stiff and flex. Now, if you want to ride a bike that's stiff in the wrong places and flexy in the wrong places, it was a very complicated bike to ride, I think. Yeah. I yeah. think that for me, the Enduro 29 was a very important step to the Enduro bikes we're riding today. And for that reason, I'm going to put it down as the Enduro bike of the decade. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the real exciting stuff, or at least for me, the downhill bikes. 
Steve, let's start with you this time. Uh, let's start with Donny. <laughs> Donald Bikes. Uh, for me, it's it's a very, very easy conversation. Ooh. It's the antidote from southern Poland, uh, like I said earlier. Uh, a guy called George Dabrowski, he makes uh, prosthetics for, that's, that's his main job, but it's a really niche brand. And it comes down to, it comes down to speed. And I was riding this bike and I was thinking, holy shit, this bike is seriously fast, like seriously fast. And I'm, so I phoned up Muldoon from MBR, who like, I wanted to get a second opinion on it. I said, Muldoon, you get down, you need you to ride this bike. And he rode it and he goes, oh, it's easy, you got the wrong tires, you got hard compound tires, that's why it's so fast. I said, no, I'm not, there's soft compound tires in it. And like, there's massive conversation, we couldn't shake our heads, why is it so fast? And um, so we, we brought in three other top end bikes, like, you know, the cream of, of what, certainly what people perceive as being the best. And this bike just absolutely took, it, took them apart. I mean, it was so, so composed. And I think it comes down to, like what I mentioned earlier, getting that flex and stiffness balance correct on a bike. And when you rode that bike, I was like, it was like such a dream to ride. And think of the materials. Obviously, there was like Kevlar and Vec Vectran. Is it Vectran? Involved? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Age, Age of Vectran. Yeah, the... and it's like, <laughs> and you know, they, they're all in, individually made. They had, they had the, uh, the shock from Franco Fratton EXT in Italy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it was, for me, that was the so, bike. I mean, incredibly strong argument. You seem to be very passionate about these bikes. Well, the, but what? Why then? And I, I'm just being devil's advocate here because I'm, I think they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. Why then? Haven't? I mean, it's, uh, and actually, no, I'm not going to ask that question. No, ask it. I know. I know you're going to come. I was going to say, why don't you see more of them? Or why? Are they because more because they're unfair. a tiny, they're a very they're tiny, a tiny brand. brand. Okay, yeah. look, it's like this. Um, when I went to Olin's, I don't know, six years ago. Yeah. Uh, the guy, I said, guys, you know, you need to get these these shocks on top level bikes. And they, they said to me, they said, we and it, it's recorded somewhere, you'll see it. He said, we will never, ever pay a brand to use our, our suspension. And here we are, I don't know, five years later, and the World Cup Lloyd Bruni yeah, is, is on Olin's. So and similarly, that's an example of a, well, it's actually not a small brand. It's actually a big brand. But in mountain bike terms, yeah. Olin's was a small brand. Um, and yeah, Antidote, it's, it's, a, it's a tiny company, but it's a very niche company. Make, those guys know what they're doing. They've got massive experience of carbon. Like I said, they, you know, they make those prosthetics and stuff like that. They know how things feel. And like I said, just because a, a bike wins a World Cup Series, it doesn't mean to say it's the best bike. Mean, and also, what bike are they actually running on that World Cup Series? What jiggery pokery is going on behind the scenes that yeah. maybe the consumer doesn't have access to? Yeah. So, Doddy, what would be your All right, so submission? Completely different angle again to Steve. So... Obviously, Steve's background is downhill and working with Dirt Magazine doing that. My background is working on mass market stuff, and I always think about the consumer here. So there would be two main options. YT, as we've already discussed, for essentially pioneering a, re a really affordable, high-tech bike. But actually, I would say the Giant Glory. Ooh, Ooh yeah. That was because, bike, that? because Giant, they're Great cheap, show. they've got mm. an amazing warranty, and they work. All right, it might not be the fastest, might not be the best looking, but you buy a glory, you are set. 2015, that glory came out, I believe. Maybe even t the winter of t yeah, 2014. Maybe touch earlier, but yeah, yeah, around that, yeah. 470 reach and a large, yeah. which mm. is healthy. It had, prop, I think, 440 chainstays, maybe. So it was like, Forget. it was really, really good, really good size. Yeah. Maestro, kind of proven pedigree. Mm. And yeah. a privateer race bike. Dolly, I understand, agree with you. I mean, when yeah. I rode the glory, fantastic bike. And, and also, mm. if we, if we take pure performance out of it for a minute, you've got to think also yeah. that downhill... It's yeah. big, but it's still quite niche. It's a very yeah. specific bike. Yeah. And to give people the opportunity to get on a bike that's World Cup capable, like... Yeah, Danny Hart's one like, on that. 
Danny Hart. So Danny Hart won on the 26th. Yeah. The 650, I believe, is the bike you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, to be fair, I'm talking about the general. glory, well, you the go, whole, oh, okay. the whole glory go, category. They, they, you know, they've made the privateers bikes, you know, for, for decades. For decades they, you know, yeah. The ATX-1 mm-hmm. in the 1990s mm-hmm. and the yeah, all versions of the glory. That model bike has always been value, yeah. performance, yeah. and totally. almost unbeatable for what you pay. Can I say one thing before I forget? Go on. Right. Why not? Treat there yourself is only you. one game chair. I mean, the antidote's amazing performance. Yeah, the glory mm-hmm. is privateer bike. There is only one bike that changed the game. Does Oh, okay. That is Jeff Steber's 29-inch Intense from 2009. Yeah. So there you go, right back 10 years ago. Yeah. And it took it took the downhill world seven years to, to cotton on to that. I mean, Santa Cruz, fair to Santa Cruz, they turned up in Lords in 2017. 17 with the 20, mm-hmm. you, you were working, yeah. was, you were there then, weren't yeah. you? And, you know, you know, they said, right, we're going we're gonna to do it. But that whole process was began by Jeff Steber in 2009. Do you think something like the Trek Session, which possibly, and I'm going to say this because it went super light, and then people said, actually, I mean, we talk about the Mondrake as well, but I think the Trek did it in quite a public way. They went super light with those OCLV carbon when Aaron Grimm was riding it, and they got it down to, it was like 30, low, well, low I, 30s. Well, actually, and I think um, people realised that maybe having a downhill bike that was as light as it possibly could be wasn't the be-all and end-all. No. And I think that changed the concept. So I actually rode the pre-production versions of both the, the track sessions. I rode the, the 20, um, the what was it called? In 20, 2008. Oh, it was. It um, was the first, oh, yes. first um, anyway, it was the first bike. Anyway, they built their own one. They, the high they, pivot one. They built, no, the one after, the first one of the current sort of style. Yeah. Uh, 31 pounds, yep. and they decided it was too light. And when you're talking about weight, it's really, it's a, one guy who, totally believes weight is important on downhill bike is Nico Vulios. He believes 35 pound is a sweet spot for downhill bikes. Uh, I don't know how we got on this conversation weight. I'm talking about <laughs> how Trek maybe went, went to an extreme place, yeah. which then changed the context of the argument because everyone was like, maybe we don't need to chase weight. We can put our resources to other things. Mm. And I think that is important. If you look at those comment cells, they, I don't think, have any intention of being that light. No. They're, not, they're, not, they're not heavy. The, the private bike of choice. The, current, yeah. gets the to current that. common style yeah. 29 downhill is an absolute it's a beast. I've got that on my list actually. Yeah. Yeah. Is it more modern? Yeah. It's well, actually yeah. the last downhill yeah. bike. I think it was the last downhill bike I rode at dirt. That was. It was Ari- Amri Piron's bike. Yeah. It was absolutely really sensational. I, sensational. I, I love the fact that's high pivot using its best yeah. orientation. Yeah. yeah. Like, downhill for pure forward momentum. I think so. Yeah. So I think on the strength of what you said about the giant though, mm. the glory I think brought downhill. All about the monetary Downhill stuff, to the, isn't it? to the people. Yeah. So I think that's definitely yeah. not going. I don't want to argue that, don't I? Now, the most m- important moving suspension component of the decade. Now, there is a right answer for this, and I've got it in my mind. <laughs> so, no pressure. Off you go. Doddy, <laughs> doddy. <laughs> Rockshox Pike. That's the right answer. Yeah. It so the changed the, geometry as well. The, the, so the pre, pre-2010 Pike was an amazing fault. We had the U-turn on it, the little 32mm stanchions. I had a coil one and I had a um, one that wasn't U-turn that had their dual air. Yep. So you could adjust the negative chamber. And that was phenomenal. It was just a bit small and a bit weedy. Yes. And then when the later one came out, I think 2013, around there, uh, that changed everything. Before we really get this loving started, yeah. Steve, do you have anything you want to do to disrupt proceedings? No, I mean, I remember, remember having the, the pike on yeah. it. I think on Yeti Hardtail, I think. Yeah. What, what, I can't, I can't remember what so, bike I first had it on, but... I think the bike yeah. came to the mass market with yeah. the black 
Four Clegs, etc., mm. yeah, etc. Yeah. In 2013, I think. Yeah, I thought it was about that. No, yeah, yeah. 2013. Yeah. yeah. No, the original part that I just referenced was way sooner. Oh, way back. That's but, what but, I'm, but, so, but the one I'm talking about for the last decade was 2013. The, the all black sorry, with sorry, the fast right, black right. uppers. Yeah. 35 I mean, mil stanchions. Yeah. I think the reason for me it's important is the fact that it suddenly opened up a lot of geometry options on trail bikes mm-hmm. because before you'd get bikes. Hold on. Hold on. No, no. Hear me whoa, out. Let, whoa, let, whoa. let me finish my point. Before you'd get bikes. For the mass market, and they tried a sixty-six degree head angle, which now isn't now isn't extreme, but they put a thirty-two fork on, They're like one fifty. Yeah. It was like wet spaghetti. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and these, or you'd go lyric, but that was too heavy. I but think it was, the it was also gave a good center. It could cross categories as well. Yeah. For the first time, it was light enough that you could ride it for trail. It was tough enough for enduro before enduro started going too ballistic and yeah. needing a bigger fork. Uh, at the time, it was yeah. incredible, absolutely it, amazing. It was a very nice off-the-shelf fork. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, in all it orientations, wasn't, it wasn't game-changing. I don't think. I think. I think it was. I think if you're looking at game-changing, you're looking again like the small niche brands. I think EXT, a guy called Franco Fratton from mm. Northern Italy, massive experience of of, of of WRC, but he came out with EXT Shock. Yeah, that story. Uh, lo- a low-pressure yeah. system, and when I put it on the, when I put it on a on a demo bike, I was like, "What the hell is going on here?" Like the grip. Like absolutely off the charts, yeah. and uh, not everybody's cup of tea though, because you know we we are we like to ride bikes that are that are, that are fun, they're easy to move around and stuff like that. This bike was a tires on this this shock was a tires on the ground shock. Yeah, simple as that. Mm. And if you're looking for speed and grip, there is no, there is no comparison. I mean, I think something like that, something like a product like that, is really important. But it sits on the periphery and pulls it pulls the market a certain way, just just through its own. No, excellence, basically. Yeah, but something like the Pike delivers. Yes, it to the market. Well, no, it's an available. It's a shock. that's available. The thing is, it's a very niche thing, and it's. But I think. Can, we, I, yeah, go on. can I just chuck in something else? Yeah. Just in a, a, again, like I'll always, be devil's advocate with you here. So you're going pure performance. I get that, and that AXT is something special. Mm-hmm. But the thing I love about the Pike is there was a Pike for everyone. You could have the expensive yeah, damper. Totally. You could have the cheap yeah. damper. Yeah. You could have twenty nine. You could have six fifty. You could have twenty six. Different travel options. I 100% that, don't, that I don't disagree with you. Offered everyone I, a kind of yeah, taste of that point. I don't disagree with you at all. Now, there's one part, even though I am I do believe it's the Pike. Oh, st- same category. Sorry. Same yeah. category. Yeah. Yeah. Now, even though I do believe it is the Pike, what about internally rooted dropper seat posts? Because we wouldn't be able to get long length. Is that a suspension still- component, though? That's just a component, surely. I think, I think that's a moving suspension. Exactly. It's got the a first thing system. My, well, no, it's got an IFP. Dropper posts the first thing on my list. <laughs> but I didn't know yep. we were talking about that. Yeah, hundred percent. Got to be. I mean, change everything. There's not I, suspension, and the dropper post came out. Actually, the reverb. The first people to the hydraulic one was earlier. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, the poor guys that made the first dropper post, the American. What, what was it called? The first company. Gravity dropper. I mean, I mean, they started it, and like in typical mountain bike fashion, a whole tide tidal wave of of. Of brands thought, yeah, let's go make some Woo! droppers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> look at that one, blah, 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 blah. But it was the Gravity Dropper guys, they started it off, right? Yeah. Take your hat off. Well, Gosh, actually, I'm going to no. take my hat. Was it not them? Well, no, technically. It goes, tip a hat. It tip goes, a hat to hat dropper. Just, um, just for the audio of you at home, tip Steve is quite literally tipping tip a hat. Tip a hat to the... <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> for the audio of you at home, I'm about to correct Steve. Technically, the first dropper was, um, it was right? by Joe Breeze. Yeah. Okay. And, and right. Whoever it was then. And, Good and, on. And, no, Good on. That, that was just a spring. <laughs> oh, another hat. But I enabled you to. Dr- 
another hat. Joe, Joe Breeze. For the audio, Hats after Joe Breeze. For the audio listener at home, he's got a second hat. It's Breeze, Breeze <laughs> and Angel <laughs> Engineering, actually. They did it. Um, and that, that enabled everyone to drop a post and raise it again. Yeah. And obviously, the telescopic versions came much later. Yeah. But it was them that opened the door to, why can't you just slam it down and bring it back up? It's great. Great stuff. Okay, so the pike is going in because of the... The difficult grey area the dropper finds itself in, which decade, huh. how long it's been about. But I think the internally rooted dropper was an important refinement. I agree. Yes, great. Now, the most important the piece of wheel and tyre tech. So we're talking tyres, rims, hubs. Yeah. I- I'm sure everyone's very eager to say boost 148 because that just changed <laughs> everything. What about super boost? <laughs> <laughs> said no one <laughs> who wants to jump on this a live grenade I've got I've got a great one go to on, jump buddy. in go here. Go I, I kind of got two the most important one I think is UST basically yeah yeah straight in why, why would why would you go for that one um, because it was the first tubeless system yeah. uh, and it's just been refined over the years the fact it's got sealed rim beds that is really the key to it working everyone says tubeless compatible and you're like no you're just putting rim tape on now I agree with you I think UST is really important but why are we seeing so many brands move away from UST as uh, we close production out production costs is that because that? You, you can get around it by using rim tape yeah. but that doesn't make your rim tubeless compatible so what what would you have to do to design to make you know I mean if you could just talk, talk through the design limitations of a UST rim that would really help for the viewer at home perhaps yeah okay so on a typical rim you would lace it up to the spokes by dropping the nipples through a hole in the rim, basically. Yeah. And you get different rims. You get double walls, single walls, and all that sort of stuff. And what Mavic developed, I think it was with Hutchinson and perhaps Michelin, uh, might be incorrect in this. Um, I forget the date as well, to be honest. But what they started developing was a rim system that had a sealed rim bed. And it had a slightly different hook design, but it wasn't that much different. And then a tyre technology that enabled you to keep air in there without an inner tube, basically, and then use a tyre sealant to fix any holes. Now, I think this was really important. I think tubeless tech has come along yeah. massively. Well, my next thing was kind of along that basis, and it was hookless rim designs. Ooh, yeah, that is very good. Enabled you to still make a light rim that was strong. Yeah. And I'm not talking about necessarily carbon here. The one I've listed was an Ibis 741. Uh, it's just one of the first ones I happened to ride by chance. Uh, and actually, that rim was insanely stiff, which wasn't my preference. I preferred a rim that's got a little bit of flex to it, a bit more comfort. Um, but the hooker's rim design enables you to put a lot more strength in a rim, get a lot more durability, basically, and it doesn't affect how the tyre is held on. Okay. And I think that's a really cool piece of tech. For me, Henry, it's actually incredibly simple. Now, uh, for me, I think bicycle products should be about rider comfort and speed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took 15 29-inch wheel, 150mm trowel enduro bikes down a six-minute track, and we had three riders testing the bikes, an 18-year-old, a 25, a 35-year-old, and me, who is not 27, 50. <laughs> uh, and one bike was consistently faster, and we were trying to work out why was this bike faster and why was it comfortable. And it came down to the fact that it was had a 24-spoke front wheel. And we put that wheel onto the bike. So you're like, oh shit, it's as simple as that. Comfort. Yeah. Comfort. <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah. 24 spoke front wheel. You, you said a word that I think is really and important. It was al- and it was alloy as well. And I think that it actually doesn't even sit in the vernacular of many mountain bikers. Comfort. Hmm. People think. Comfort and speed. But, no, but comfort in you general. You need comfort to get mm. speed. People, people think, mm. oh, just hold on. You know what I mean? I think the stiff, stiff, yeah. stiff, stiff, stiff. Yeah, I mean, we've, not, we've, we've, not we've, everyone is Aaron Quinn. <laughs> yeah. Well, I we've think become, only one person's Aaron Quinn. <laughs> you know, people, people have, become, have become associated with stiffness, with speed, which is absolutely incorrect, mm-hmm. you know, especially on a mountain bike. 
Um, but do you not find it strange? And just talking about wheel tech, and I think that there are certain companies that are, in, are really on a good path now. I think of those Zip wheels. I think of um, Ibis wheels. But damping. People want to put a super high-tech damper in their bike, which is great. Good on them. I mean, we talk about, you know, increasing more oil flow, all this stuff. Sort of, we're going back to coil IFPs. Lots of, we're talking about coil forks and coil shocks. But the, the suspension unit can only work off the feedback given to it by the tire, the wheel and the tire. So if the tire and the wheel are giving it a spike, that is not what the suspension unit wants to deal with. Mm. If it's constantly, if it's just taking the edge off. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be careful. I mean, a lot of people ride mountain bikes for different reasons. I, like, mm -hmm. I've primarily been riding like downhill and enduro style riding. But I guess if you, know, if you ride smooth single track, you might want to, you might actually want something different. So. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. Yeah. But um, would there be, so your kind of most important piece of wheel and tire tech of the decade is basically it comes, moving away from super stiff rims. It comes back to getting, what I started the whole discussion off with is, is getting the right flex and stiffness balance correct. That, for me, is the most important tech you can get on a mountain bike. And going forward into the next decade, what, what do you think is the best way to proceed? Because it's, do you think it's actually, we need to change the language in which we talk I, about wheels? I'll tell you wheels, what it is. I'll tell you what's happening. Is like a lot of these bikes and wheels and components are actually, not so much the components, they're designed on screens. And we go from, we go from the design to one prototype to production in the Far East. What doesn't happen with loads of brands is they go design, prototype, test, 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 test get the feeling right on these things, time it, make sure, you know, these things, it's not just a feeling, it's actually a fact. Yeah. These things are faster. So for me, I think that's important. I rode a some brands are doing it. I rode a set of quite, well, quite carbon wheels recently, aggressive carbon trail enduro wheels. And they came from the factory with thread, lock, thread locked nipples, which is fine, but I'm, I'm not for or against that. So from that, I don't think that wheel is probably ever really going to lose tension through your average rider's use. The performance was so vastly improved by taking a turn of tension, half a mm. turn of tension off each wheel. I mean, literally to the point where it changed the characteristics of the whole bike. And you can imagine, yeah. we think, you think look, two or three PSI on your tyre yeah. could do that as well. You know, and yeah, all these marginal gains you can make, it, it can be undone massively. Absolutely incredible. Um, mm. Let's talk about tyres. At the start of the decade, I think mm, there was only a few choices in terms of what you'd actually see when the when push came to shove on a World Cup circuit. People were reaching for their minions. Specialised had gave it a good a good shot in the early part of the decade. They did the Storm, the Butcher, the Hillbilly. Some really good tyres. Yeah. At the end of the decade, there's a lot more divergence in brands. We're seeing even with things like. Companies that were really big had like a 90s heyday, like Kenda, mm. and now making Michelin. World Cup winning rubber. Michelin, Enduro World Series winning rubber. Mm -hmm. We talk about the ever-present, such as Maxis or Schwalbe. Do you think tyres have changed much in the past decade, or do you think we just more people are doing the good stuff? I remember, I remember riding the Michelin uh, Comp 16s in 1996, 97. What a tire that was! Insane. I mean that. I mean that changed Later the game. Later called the DH 16, didn't it? Changed the so, game forever. Yeah. And I, I don't think you, a tire today is any better than the Comp 16 from 1997. What really? about a tire like? Whoa! <laughs> completely wrong. What about a tire that has brought something like cut spike to the masses, the shorty? Yeah, I love the shorty. That's a great tire. The shorty. Well, it's probably, yeah. probably my favorite tire. It's one of the. I think. Something that you can do is not it's not great in the bike park, 
but it's not terrible either. Mm. But remember, Henry, the, the special had the hillbilly before the shorty. Yes, they did. Yeah. Can I just jump back to that Michelin thing for a second? Yeah. Right, so <laughs> I completely agree with you. The Comp 16, probably one of my favourite tyres of all time. Right. Yeah. Phenomenal. It was slow though. Yeah, it was really heavy as well. And tyre tech has changed that. So you can have tyres now that are, are as grippy. Just forget tread out Cue of it. Doddy's Wait visit second. to the Far East. Right, hold on. <laughs> but but there's also other things, and you've both been talking about... <laughs> so you've both been talking about <laughs> the similarities and the problems and differences with stiffness of things. Yeah. And it's something you get on tyres now that you didn't used to have. This thing's called elastic stroke. Yeah, and that changes the comfort and the traction you have. Henry, should we like, just get our coat? Tyre tech is better than it's... <laughs> ever been but that still was a phenomenal tyre but they're clearly doing it right because they've got that DH22 now what brand are you talking about here? Michelin again same okay, brand right, right, yeah? what? Right. and that DH22 I think if you put that against the 16 it will piss all over it Yeah, well, like, actually, but the 16 was phenomenal what, what? and the 24 as well the trans out mm-hmm. that was also yeah. hell of a tyre what about something like the DH2 the Minion DHR2 sorry yeah mm-hmm. great tyre I mean, that is something that you good, see good on the front as well. To be fair, so, on a lot yeah. of bikes. Well, I'll say something regarding that tire. The um, I'm surprised that I mean, com- comfort and speed go hand in hand, right? Because like a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of racers say, "Oh, arm pump, blah blah blah." And I think that's because of the overly stiff bikes a lot of the time, and maybe bad suspension. I'm surprised World Cup downhill riders do not use 2.6 and 2.8 tires, which will just Go boom, straight through all those rocks okay. and roots. All they need to all they need to do is make it make it the same weight but the same stiffness sidewalls. There goes the problem though. Yeah, that is such a hard thing to do, mm. which is why we've seen the two point six rise. Yeah, and the two point eight kind of yeah. So that, that's if you ask me what I'd like to see in the next decade. Yeah. I, I think it will get there yeah. with the tech with things we've seen because you think like Wyatt yeah. Beads but, used to be the one and now it's Kevlar yeah. foldings but even for downhill. Being quite specific to downhill here, yeah. not not to general. Yeah, yes. So no. yeah. But yeah. So I think the most important piece of wheel or tyre tech has to be, in my opinion, I think it's this moving away from the ultra-stiff setups. Yeah. Because I think it's going to help people in ways they don't even contemplate. Yeah. The most important drivetrain, either component or kind of setup. Uh, unfortunately, that's really easy for me. Me too. Um, it's when SRAM launched XX1 1x11. Yeah, uh, I put because down... When, when they did that, they obviously they had the... The one by chain ring, the X sync. So I put down narrow wide chain ring. Yeah, okay. Like, so like, same that. thing, right? Yeah, and and really they were. I mean, there were other chain rings floating around, but they were the first mm. people to have a full transmission. Yeah. So to do that, to get the eleven speed, they had to redesign a cassette. The way that was designed, that was phenomenal. Yeah. The driver body to fit that, but it's all about the chain ring and what that's enabled suspension designers to do. Yeah. So do you remember with double and triple? Yeah. All those wonky pivots mm. and tiny. Yeah. It's just horrible. I wasn't so worried. And worried about- just, because I wasn't yeah. so worried about the gears and the cassette and everything. I think it's what chain, else it does. The chain ring was it changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, sure. that's what I mean like, by having the one by. Yeah. yeah, the clutch make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think SRAM really did knock it out. And I think, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was skeptical. I was like, you know, please, I'm not. Ne- I, I kept I the chain guide it. in my bag. <laughs> Yeah. I did, honestly. Yeah. I believe like, you still do to this, this day. This can't work. <laughs> I've got a top and bottom roller just in case. But I was skeptical. I thought, listen, I need twenty-two teeth at the back. Yeah. And also, I remember. I remember. Sorry, on the, on the front. On the front. <laughs> and I remember telling back. my friend, saying, "I think I'm going to get a one by drivetrain." Yeah. And he said, "I've got a thirty-six, thirty-six. Yeah. You only need a one-to-one ratio. For, like, stop complaining." And it was like, "Oh, oh okay, sorry. I'll, no, good point." And it was. Actually, was really limited a lot of riding, and it made it made people think. I think it made people ride bikes and think, 
climbing is horrible. And actually, now it's, climbing is a far pleasant, more pleasant experience. Well, climbing's always horrible. But, <laughs> but, but, but uh, just, just with the, 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 all of this one by stuff, yeah. So the, the chain ring, no doubt, all this stuff. But there's also something else that this has led to in a really good way. So you remember when we had, back in the day, three chain rings on a bike? When you're in your outer chain ring, your suspension would feel really good. When you're in your granny ring, oh, course, you yeah. tend to have loads of anti-squat, yeah? <laughs> by having a one by, all suspension manufacturers have been able to. Fine I hate tune. to use the word, optimise their optimize. suspension based on a single chain line. Faster, stiffer, stronger, <laughs> optimised. Yeah, but it has. It absolutely has, though. And the one by system has changed everything. That is a category. Really that is a category we should it's have in this conversation, which is the most optimised bike in the world. Mm. I mean, it's a well, no could, brainer, can, can we have that after this discussion? <laughs> or after another pint <laughs> of Guinness. Now, um, God, just change your record. I, want to, um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, I mean, especially, I think, with one by Trainings, you were saying mm. some, some like an early aftermarket adopter, like Race Face, remember, bought out. They didn't waste any time, <laughs> and it suddenly meant people were just bodging and making making bikes one by. Yeah, Renthal did as well, super fast. What yeah. were the limitations of oh. suspension design before? If you could just explain to the viewer, yeah, because it's all very well us saying, but if you could just See, explain, that's, that's not a that's okay, not, that's okay, not all a right. quick answer. <laughs> no, 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 no I'll, I'll, I'll do this right. So the first one is when you've got three chain rings on there you're limited in the amount of room you have around the BB yoke of a bike. So quite often they would offset the pivot down there or they would make the pivot shorter, in which case neither of which was an ideal compromise to make a bike handle well. Okay, people made it work, but it certainly wasn't that pretty and there were lots of issues with flex that could be eradicated by not having to make it like that. So by having a one by system, you could make that pivot point wider. You can make the whole stance of the bike much more stable, strong and efficient. So from that point of view, Amazing. And then the chainring's point of view, as I just said, in a little chainring, you tended to have more anti-squat. So when you pedal, the bike stands up. Yep. Great for climbing. Feels horrible in other, other parts of the bike. You change it into the outer chainring, i.e. the big chainring, and you'd have the opposite effect of that. The bike would squat and it would sit in and feel nice. Mm. But now that you could tune that so you could have the optimised position for the best of both worlds based on a chainring size. Now, it has meant, though, that some manufacturers design a bike around, say, a 30 and from my point of view, it's like, oh, I want a 34. I don't want yeah. a 30. But, you know, you're talking like a small amount here. Yeah. And then with the range of gears, you've got 12 gears on a, on a cassette these days. You think that on the higher gears, which is the smaller teeth on the cassette, you're going to have lower anti-squat and vice versa. Yeah. So you kind of, you can tune that with the size chain ring. Yeah. You pick, but it simplifies it massively, I think. Unfortunately, I don't think all, I don't think all the brands have actually worked out on the balance between anti-squat and anti-rise. There's still some bikes which are pretty... And you, dogs. Who cares? We've got an e-bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I we should maybe mention. Just a turbo. Yeah, yeah. should I maybe wanna, mention when it comes to e what are the most progressive bike brands. I think the ones who started making e-bikes. They they are arguably one of the most. Yeah. They are the most progressive yeah. brands. I mean, a brand like Specialized, they made e-bikes look cool with the first Levo. Yeah, I mean, Unless, I, 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 right. I think we should yeah, not go into e-bikes. Right. That's a whole I, different subject. I don't, I don't want to go into. I don't necessarily want to go into e-bikes, but I think you're right. I think e-bikes have probably. A lot of the tech that people have delivered for e-bikes, and you know, I was joking about the Fox 38 early one. I think that that probably is going to be at home most on an e-bike, but it also actually gives the end consumer more choice mm. because they can. Can there be someone like me who, on a 35 mil fork, is absolutely happy as Larry on a 36 is absolutely happy? But if they do ride harder, they can then start thinking about the e-bike. I mean, we even think mm. about drivetrains. We think about yeah. loads of things. Well, I if think e-bike okay, gives if, the consumer right, more okay, choice. Here's, on, the here's the bottom line, and this is going to have a huge impact 
on on technology, right? And his SD card. And his yeah. SD card. I'm going to say yeah. it very quickly. Right? <laughs> Within six weeks of this conversation, there will be a 15 kilo, 150 mil e-bike on the market. What is that going to do to the whole mountain bike world? It's going to break my heart. For starters. <laughs> but let's not, let's not go into it. Let's, no, let's, let's move on. Let's, can we just move on to something else? Yeah. Well, it sounds by unanimous decision, the winner of the drivetrain of the decade, or at least the most innovative one, was the one by setup. And sure, all, the, all that it came with it. Yeah. 100%, yeah. The designer of the decade. And I'm not talking some of those, you know, fancy catwalk shoes. I'm talking bicycles, man. <laughs> But before we get there, let's mm. talk briefly about material choice. Yeah. Because that obviously has a massive effect upon design. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, for me, uh, a guy called Joe McEwen, who's uh, a, a carbon... guest on this podcast, actually. All right. Well, he's... Uh, right, you know, I need to watch that. But he was, um, he was a carbon fibre boffin at, for an aer- um, aeroplane company. He decided to make some mountain bikes out of steel. And he knew the right steel, the right weights, the right grades and everything like that. And he made a bike which was, for me, uh, one of the... Yeah, a game changer, basically. A, a mid-travel 29-inch wheel bike, which felt amazing. And yeah. it was relatively inexpensive. Now, I'm going to make a prediction, which you're more than welcome to take me up on. Five pounds, that by the end of this next decade, aluminium bikes will be the boutique option. Quite possibly, yeah. I think that it's going to be, get to a point where if you're doing a large run, carbon can actually be more efficient in terms of cost. And I think that it will be a case of... There's a couple of... You know, you see it, it's kind of happening in road bikes a bit now. You get bikes like the Alley Sprint, which is a specialised bike, which is kind of like the Criterion Racer bike of choice. And it's very boutique, it's very cool, it's very edgy. And you're seeing other brands also make like the CAD from Cannondale. And I think we might start seeing that. Well, or at least or at least the bike the bike brands will make us think that aluminium is the boutique brand. I mean they're very good. Oh my they're, god, that's what's happened, hasn't it? They're very good at they're very good at, at convincing us what we should be doing. Because like it comes back to what I say, it's about performance. Can you prove that a carbon fiber bike is of higher performance than an Ali one or a steel one. Mm. No, you can't, or it's very difficult to do. It that. depends on what high performance is, though, doesn't it? Really, it's, yeah. it's, it's too hard. hard to quantify that. What do you think about steel, Daddy? I love steel. Mm, I, lo- I think it's a great. Material. I love steel. I'm, titanium's probably been my favourite material for what it offers, but it's not very practical on a lot mm. of senses. Um, steel, yeah. yeah, steel's steel's great. Alloy's great. I, I kind of like a bit of everything. I'm a. Mm. I don't have a a number yeah, one favourite thing. I love what carbon. Carbon has done and what it's doing and it's enabling designs to think about in other materials as well off the back of the way they have to produce carbon. And I love that some manufacturers are starting to think differently about how you produce it in a time-sensitive way, Um, you know, like what IBIS have been doing with like using less pieces of carbon and a much shorter process. Why is it, do you think, that some of the most progressive brands currently sort of making bikes. So yeah, Starling on a, on a boutique side. I'm thinking Pole, I'm thinking Common Style, I'm thinking Geometron. Yeah. Do you think it's because they're all long-haired hippies that have environmental reasons? Or do you think it's because... Why do you, why do you think that is? Like, there just seems to be a really in, interesting thing going on where progressive bikes, at the moment, the progressive brands seem to be using predominantly metal. Well, there's no doubt that it's faster and easier to work with and cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that's going to help them be more progressive. Yeah. Uh, no one can take that away. Uh, that's no bad thing either. Especially I, for I a love alloy. Brand, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's way easier to work with, for sure. Um, carbon takes way more commitment to be able to Very true. work to the same, not the same quality, but the same sort of level to produce a bike like that. And obviously a lot more foresight in doing so. Um, I think alloy will always be king in that respect. Yeah. Because you... 
until you can rapid prototype carbon, which I know a couple of brands are doing at the moment, and that technology will come forwards. Until that happens, I think Arrow will be king. And Steve, what do you what do you have anything to add to that? I don't, really, don't even add anything to that really. Okay. Wow, Steve Jones, speechless. Never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> Especially for you, Andrew. <laughs> however, however, um, I'll probably come. Yeah, there will be something I'll want to discuss in the next nomination, possibly. Okay, so going into that, who is your design of the decade? If we start with you, Steve. Uh, I've actually got a podium. Oh, lovely. If you don't mind. Uh, I think I'll start the podium off with uh, Jeff Steber, who is the owner and founder of Intense Cycles in Temecula, California. Uh, And on that point, (laughs) he's a perfect example of my last point. Yes. Um, Someone that makes carbon bikes, they make loads of carbon bikes, but he does all his rapid prototyping and testing himself with alloy. Yes, very so true. A, so I think, of... and I think, you know, we talked about it earlier, I think the 29-inch wheel downhill bike, which he designed 10 years ago, is, yeah, as a, he was yeah. ahead of the curve. Uh, secondly, for me, would be a guy called Alan Milliard, who actually makes oh. motorcycle stuff. Yeah. Now, Alan is a, a bomb maker from, in, from uh, Eastern England. He came out... Like dad bomb or bombs, literally bombs? Or bombs, Oh, yeah. right, sorry. <laughs> However, so he, he made a bike with a hermetically sealed drivetrain, single-sided swinging arm, <laughs> uh, very, some very different damping. I tank think, shock on it. Tank shock, which yeah. is like, you can, you know, you, so basically, short story, uh, I was doing this downhill track, it's called the 104 track, fastest time, mostly done on 200 mil tra- uh, travel bikes, really rocky, really hard rode it down there on his bike, and he told me two months later, he said, oh, what I didn't tell you is that bike had 130 mil travel. <laughs> I was like, what? No. I've also <laughs> ridden this bike, and I've, done, I've worked with Alan as well. Yeah. So this bike had no damping on the rear shock until you hit something. <laughs> I know, and it was like... It was highly charged insane. with nitrogen. Yeah. The most bonkers thing. Bonkers. You look at it, you're like, this cannot work. So he tried to sell lots, lots of aspects of his design to the mountain bike industry, but they couldn't do a deal. And, and, and sadly, that technology is still sitting on the shelf in Surrey. And he is also the guy that put a V10 engine in a motorbike because people said it couldn't be done. Sounds like an interesting character. And he, and he yeah. did it in his front room. No yeah. joke. How much of do you think of these weird and wonderful contraptions are sitting in basements and spare living and spare bedrooms because they haven't been able to be sold? I mean, well, you hear about things like an example I would cite is a brand like Bionicon. Now they <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out. Oh, oh, get, careful here. Now, I don't. <laughs> I, all I mean, all I mean, Steve, please stop that. It's going to drive me to the Uber. Now, all oh I mean by that God. is, I don't think they are necessarily the bike I would like to ride, but they designed something, they tried to sell to the industry, the industry that wasn't necessarily interested, so they built it themselves. Well, that's what I'm saying. People that make stuff concept, to sell. Concept was absolutely brilliant. The GOAT concept. Yeah. Now, do you think there's a lot of things that just never see the light of day from maybe not as wacky as Bionicon, but like like, well, like this bike you're all talking so, about, yeah. it just never really makes it because it's not viable or because yeah. the consumer maybe isn't actually ready for it. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's like it's like the, my next nominee would be uh, Franco Fratten, who who's the designer of uh, EXT shocks in Venezia, Northern Italy. Uh, he he came out with a shock which is a low pressure system, like tires on the ground, blah blah blah. And he just couldn't sell them. He just couldn't sell them. He phoned me up. He says, what am I going to do with these shocks? I said, well, I don't know. And luckily for him, 
It was the transition when Chris Porter of Mojo Fox, he left that position and he set up his own business and he's now selling them, selling the EXT stuff. And you said, luckily for him, I thought you were going to say the Monmouth Chicago boot that weekend <laughs> and you turned a pretty penny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for me, the my designer of the decade is George, Dabro George Dabrowski from Antidote Bikes and how he managed to get the whole system, the frame, the suspension, the geometry, unless, you know, like I talked about earlier, he had, you know, carbon, Vectran and Kevlar in the frame. He managed to get that stiffness flex and performance. Incredible guy, super cool guy. And, and yeah, and it's what you say, like there's probably, there's probably like maybe what, 10 of them in existence in the world, which is crazy. Okay. Why aren't World Cup racers mm -hmm. riding them? Now there's one glaring omission here. Mountain biking's very own Pep Guardiola from sunny Barcelona. Cesar? who's had his fingerprints everywhere over bike design. Yeah, Mondraker, the Zero Suspension, Uno, Intense. Polygon. Even redesign that stuff, yeah. yeah. He's, I mean... It's Pretty phenomenal. Cesar, I mean, Cesar is, is a legend. He's, he's, he's worked on so many things. It's, you know, he decided, let's not forget, that um, he, he, he was going to make his Uno bikes in the Far East, but like, he was taking too long. He wanted to do it all himself. So he went and worked out how to make carbon bikes. Yeah. I mean, how bananas is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy. Yeah, yeah so, because, and he, like, he goes, yeah, I tried yeah, try to, I worked it out. And he does work it out. He's an engineer. He's a super, super intelligent guy. And an ex-World Cup downer racer as yeah. well. Yeah, podium you World know? Cup downer so, racer, yeah. So, obviously, EXT, I think EXT are doing some really exciting mm. things. And mm. I don't want to take away from that at all. Yeah. No, that was my list. Okay. Yeah. Was it, was it in particular? I, I think George Dabrowski for me is, is the man. Yeah. So I don't have Dabrowski's going to work it out. I, I, I actually agree with all of what you're saying there. Uh, Cesar, what you're saying, I had that down as well. Um, I've got to say, shout out to Dave Weagle, actually, because yeah. of Dave Weagle's suspension systems are on so many different bikes. You've got the DW Link, you've got the Delta, you've got the Orion, the Split Pivot. Yeah. Right. What's the, the 160 Evil bike? Um, the Reckoning? Is the Reckoning? No, reckon following Reckoning. Is re is re uh, I mean, yeah, that 160 bike, yeah. wow, that is, that is a the suspension's fast, amazing. beautiful right? yeah, bike. Yeah, yeah, I do like that. But I think... The thing I like about him is he helps. He designs a suspension system that can people use, and they use them in different ways to get different handling bikes. Old Die Weagle has learned a lot himself over the last twenty years. I mean, you know, the Iron Horse Sunday won, you know, phenomenal under Sam Hill, but the suspension wasn't actually that good on the Iron Horse Sunday. It's better on the trail bikes, to be fair, than yeah, on the downer bike. You yeah. know, he's definitely old Die Weagle. He's learned a lot, and I, like I say, that that evil uh, reckoning is one hell of a bike. Hell of a yeah. bike. <laughs> now I don't feel, to be honest with you. I'm not educated enough oh, to call the design of the decade. There's, there's, maybe, put there's, out, maybe put it out to the audience. There's yeah, too many, I think. I think. Yeah. I think if you're listening and yeah. you think, maybe there's a glaring omission or somebody that you'd like to just back up, get us in the comments. I'm sure there'll be some designers out there who are going to chuck their hat in the, in the ring on this one, aren't there? Yeah. I'd be good to hear from some of them. It would yeah. be nice to hear yeah. from you guys. It'd be nice to hear from you and, what, and why you think that your designing yeah, This is, is an open invitation than, to yeah. designers. You can be come great. on this podcast and uh, pitch your course. We'll have another conversation in a year. <laughs> and, we, and we'll probably have another pint soon, though, Donnie. <laughs> Should we bury a time capsule of our predictions? <laughs> <laughs> now I just want to say thank you very much for listening and um, Merry Christmas Merry Christmas everyone Merry Christmas yeah you're round big time <laughs> God, that was a long podcast